Lovely. If you'd like to take up the Bibles um, and find page 100 and, uh, no, 361. Um, our reading tonight is going to be from 1 Kings, chapter 19, um, verse 1 onwards. So that's page 306. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword, and I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, Anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nishma, king of Israel. 
and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel Malach, to succeed you as a prophet. Then Jehu will put to death any who escape the ward of Hazel, and Elijah will put to death any who escape the ward of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Kiss, me my kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his oak yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Before we start, I'll lead us in a prayer. The psalmist says this, Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we think about this topic of Elijah's suffering, of his despair this evening, we pray that what this psalmist says of your word would be true in us, that it would give us hope, that it would give us comfort, that it would preserve our lives. Please, Father, help us to understand what is quite a difficult text. Please help us, Father, to have changed hearts as a result of what we hear. We ask for your Spirit's help in that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I decided to leave my job in the exciting world of financial services to begin working for a church. Now, it was a decision I was very happy about. I had been offered a role um, training at the place I wanted to train, and it seemed like a really good time to make the switch to go to this new job. The only slight hurdle was raising the money to pay for the training. But it seemed only a small hurdle, because each year I got a bonus. Now, it wasn't a lot. I was in public sector work, so um, you know, I wasn't one of those city high flyers. But um, what, um, the bonus was very helpful, because in what seemed like a coincidence, the amount I was expecting matched exactly what I needed for the training. I thought to myself... I can see what God is doing. He obviously wants me to do this training, and he's providing the resources to do it. Then bonus time came around. I was called into a side office to sit down with my manager and hear the good news. But then he said, there'll be no bonus this year. For reasons I won't go into now, uh, bonuses had been clawed back. Uh, it had something to do with a financial crisis, but... Um, They'd been clawed back, and I didn't get one. And in that moment, I thought to myself, how am I going to pay for 
for this training. I mean, I've put all my eggs in this basket. I thought, this is what God wants me to do. What's going to happen now? I felt confused. I asked, what is God doing? I mean, surely he would want me to do this training. It's Christian work. And it seemed like he was on the way to providing the means to do it. But now those means weren't there. What was he doing? Now, I realize that experience is fairly unique, and I wouldn't blame you if you're thinking, I'm not really interested either. Um, It's not a great, very interesting story. But the point is, how many of us have found ourselves asking a similar question? What is God doing? In our Christian lives, there will be times where we expect God to do things in certain ways. Perhaps there seems to be just such an obvious path for God to take. There seems to be a right way forward, but then God does something else. I mean, perhaps we've had a friend or a family member who we've been sharing our faith with, and we were sure God was on the way to changing their hearts. But then suddenly, they went cold. And we ask ourselves, what is God doing? Or perhaps we find ourselves doing something good, what we think is good, some act of service, perhaps at church, perhaps in the community, but then we suddenly get ill, or we suffer some setback, and we cannot serve. And we say, what is God doing? Or perhaps we just expect life to go a particular way, but then we find ourselves plagued with an illness, or we receive a diagnosis that we never expected. And life takes a very different direction. And we say to ourselves, what is God doing? If we have known that experience, if we've asked that question, what is God doing, then we will know something of what Elijah feels in this chapter. See, Elijah is in despair of what, about what God is doing, or rather what he is not doing. Just to recap, Elijah, we've heard over the last few weeks, is the prophet who has been sent to a people who have rejected God for an idol. And Elijah makes it his lifetime's mission to pull the people back from their idols, back to the living God. And in the previous chapter last week, um, we thought that Elijah had achieved his goal. He organizes this big conquest big contest, rather, between the idol Baal and the Lord. Two altars were set up, and Elijah said that the God who burns up the altar will show themselves finally to be real. Now, what happens? Well, Baal's altar comes to nothing. But God sends fire on his altar. And in one huge fireball, God demonstrates decisively that he is God and he is God alone. I mean, Elijah seems to have done it. He seems to have achieved what he set out to do. I mean, the people bow down and confess the Lord is God in 18 verse 39. I mean, even evil King Ahab appears to change his heart and he starts listening to Elijah's instructions. I mean, this is time to to break out the champagne, isn't it? Hope is finally returning to this nation. And at the end of chapter 18, Elijah sprints back to the capital city, uh, Jezreel, 
I mean, you can just imagine, can't you, what he must be feeling. I mean, everything has changed. The people have seen God act. They confess he is God. The king is back on board, and he's done it. He's made it. He's achieved his lifetime's purpose. I mean, every stride he was running must have felt like he was flying. But then disaster strikes. Jezebel, the king's wife, finds out what's happened. She sends a messenger to Ahab, saying this in verse 2. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, she says, may I be struck down dead if you're not dead within 24 hours. Like a 60-ton truck, reality hits Elijah. Things are not going to go as he thought. The nation is not going to change. And Elijah flees for his life. He runs south. He makes his servant redundant and then walks out into the desert alone. And in verse 4, Elijah says this. At the end of verse 4, he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He wants to die. I mean, throughout these chapters, we've seen the power of Elijah's prayers. Now he directs a prayer on himself that he would die. Now, what are we to make of all this? Well, there's a lot of debate about Elijah's response here in chapter 19. I mean, a lot of people ask the question, and we're probably asking it as well, why is Elijah so fearful and so depressed, given that he's been such a bold character in the previous chapters? I mean, why this response from one pagan queen? But I don't think the commentators appreciate how crushing Jezebel's message was. See, Jezebel's response isn't just a threat to Elijah's life, but it brings with it the realization that Elijah has not achieved what he hoped. I think I just slip into the millennial category. I'm I'm, I'm top end, definitely top end, but just slip in. And uh, people say of that generation, the millennials, that um, we want to make a difference that we're not primarily motivated with money or financial security, but we want to do something. We want to to make a difference in the world. And looking at Elijah, I can see exactly what he's going through. It's like he's made no difference. He's spent his whole life in hardship, in opposition, trying to turn God's people from their idols, and just when it looked like he had achieved it, it was snatched from him. And he thinks to himself, that's it. I'm done. Now, is Elijah right to respond in this way? I mean, we might, we might kind of get why he does, but is it appropriate? Well, the short answer, I think, is no. See, the author shows us here that for all that Elijah had achieved, he hadn't grasped something about God. Now, where do we see that? Well, in verse 10, um, Elijah voices his complaint. He, He does it twice, in fact. In verse 10, he says this, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. 
The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah's saying, look, I've kept my end of the bargain. I've been the loyal prophet, and all that I'm rewarded with is a loss of my life. I mean, you can imagine, can't you? The hardship would have been worth it if the people had changed. I mean, if Elijah just ran back to the capital and the king and the queen turned the whole nation back to worshipping the true God, then I think he could say, do you know what? It's been worth it. And in fact, that's exactly what God seemed to be doing. I mean, in the previous chapters, um, one thing comes across very clearly, doesn't it? That Elijah's prayers are answered. Elijah prayed for no rain, and God withheld the rain. Elijah prayed for food for the widow, and her food never ran out. Elijah prayed for the widow's son to be raised, and he was. Elijah prayed that fire would fall so that the people's hearts would be changed, and fire fell. But in the last moment, everything took a different direction. What Elijah thought God was doing hasn't happened. Now, what's the problem here? Well, one speaker on this chapter says that Elijah has put God in a box. He's put God in a box. Elijah thought that God should work his way, and when God doesn't, it destroys him. And many of us will know that same disappointment. I've done it myself. We put God in a box. We expect him to work a certain way, according to what we think is right. And when he does, when our paths align with his paths, it's great. We're happy to worship him. But when God works differently, we get crushed. God might not have given you the conversion that you've been praying for for years. Or God might not have given you the job you feel made for or the partner you feel is so suited for you. Or God may have not removed from you a temptation that you face time and time again. Or God may not have given you the life you expected. You struggle with illness or suffer from the consequences of other people's sins towards you. Or you receive a diagnosis you feared. And when those things happen, it can crush us. And the thing about it is we get hit twice. I mean, not only do we have to face the difficulty itself, but also the despair that God isn't with us. He isn't working as we would expect. Now, what's our answer to all this? Are we just to stay in our confusion and our disappointment and our despair? Well, thankfully not. See, in our second point uh, on the handout, you'll see that God doesn't leave Elijah in his despair, but he wants to teach Elijah something vital about himself. Now, Elijah, he um, slips into a sleep, hoping that from it he will never wake, but at that point, God has mercy. He sends an angel to feed him. And to cut a long story short, Elijah's sent on a journey and he comes to Mount Horeb where he enters a cave. 
Now, where Elijah goes here is hugely significant. It's like if I said to you, um, I've been to the Oval Office. I mean, you, you know immediately what I'm talking about. I haven't been, but you, you know immediately what I'm talking about. I've met someone, someone who's very important and knows he's very important. And it's the same here. Mount Horeb is, a, is another name for Mount Sinai. It's where Moses met God in the burning bush. It's where God came and gave the law to his people. And the cave is so significant as well, because it was a cave in which Moses went when God revealed his presence to him. In other words, this is Elijah coming for a personal meeting with God himself. And God shows Elijah three signs. Um, I don't know what you thought of it uh, when they were read out, um, but it's caused me a lot of confusion this week, but hopefully uh, I can guide us through. He shows him three signs. The first there's this great wind, and uh, this wind comes and it breaks the rocks apart. Then there's a great earthquake. Then Elijah sees fire. But with all those signs, it says, God was not in them. He was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. Instead, at the end of verse 12, we see that God is in a gentle whisper. Or in the original, a voice that is calm and soft. Now, what's going on with these signs? I mean, how were we meant to understand that God was only in the whisper? Well, here's what I don't think it means. I don't think it means that God does not cause all these things to happen. I mean, it's obvious the wind, the earthquake, the fire are all sent from God. And I don't think it means that God never works in these ways. In Jonah chapter 1, when uh, he flees from the Lord and boards a boat, we're told that the Lord sends a great wind. I mean, it's the same words used here and there. And in the previous chapter, God has worked through a fire. Rather, all these signs are ways of describing God as a mighty warrior. I mean, elsewhere in the Bible, um, images of wind and earthquakes and fire are all used when someone wants to describe God as a victorious and mighty conqueror. Take, for example, Isaiah 29. It says that the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise. And this, it seems, here's the point, this is what... Elijah was expecting. He's just seen a God cast fire from the sky, and now he expected God to destroy his enemies. I mean, of course he would. He's all-powerful. He's just showing it. But God doesn't choose to do that. He comes in a gentle whisper, a voice that hardly registers on the decibel meter. Now, hopefully that's helped a bit, but what is the whisper? Good question. Um, Well, I think it's explained in verse 15. Have a look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Hopefully that's cleared that up. See, Elijah's told to anoint new leaders, uh, two kings and a successor. And in other words, we won't go into details, God is not going to work in the way he has in chapter 18. 
He's not going to work with great signs and demonstrations of his power. But he's going to work through a very surprising way, a different way to the way we'd imagine God to work. I mean, take, for example, Hazel there. He's an unbelieving king. He's from a pagan nation, and he says that he's going to work his plans through him. Now, all of this, all of this shows us that God's plans are beyond what we would expect. His ways are not our ways. To give you an example of how this might play out, um, in Luke chapter 9, you may remember that Jesus um, is on the way to Jerusalem and he sends out messengers to a Samaritan village to get him ready, get, get things ready for his arrival. And um, the village refused Jesus. They, they don't welcome him. And the disciples come back to Jesus. And what's their response? Well, they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And their response, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Here is a village that's rejected the Son of God. What should Jesus do? I mean, after all, he can do anything. He could send down fire and incinerate them. But we read, Jesus rebuked his disciples. His plans were not the disciples' plans. See, the disciples were just articulating how they thought an all-powerful God should act, but they missed something important. They missed that Jesus' greater plan to bring salvation before judgment. Now, how does all this help us? How does this spill out? Well, the question I've asked myself from this is, have I got a God who can surprise me? Or have I put God so much in a box that I only allow him to work the way I imagine? Perhaps you're here this evening and we're not a Christian. And one of the things that's holding you back from taking a further step is that God doesn't work the way you would expect. I mean, perhaps you think to yourself, if there was a God, then he'd end all suffering in this world. Or you think that he'd give a more obvious sign. Or you think that there'd be more people in our world that recognize him. And because God hasn't quite met what you expect of him, you hold off. You're not convinced that he's real. But this passage warns us. It warns us not to judge God according to our categories. If we do that, we will miss how he shows himself to be. Now, what about for us Christians? Well, we too need to ask, do we have a God who can work in his way? Do we give room in our hearts for God to work according to the way he thinks is best? Let me give you an example to help. Imagine you have an illness, perhaps a mental illness, perhaps a physical affliction, And you're a keen Christian. You want to serve God. You want to serve others where you can. But the illness prevents you from being as effective as you might be. I mean, you would love to do more. But the illness limits you to only a few things. And even when you do them, they're a struggle. And in those quiet moments, you dream of the things you might have achieved 
if God changed your situation. And worse, in the low moments, you think God is all-powerful. He can do all things. He can lift suffering. And so you tell yourself, if God really cared for me, he would take me on a different path. Now, what about you if you were in that situation? Is there room to let God work according to the way he thinks is best? It's a question I've asked myself. And in fact, that scenario is not a random one. It's, um, it's describing what the Apostle Paul faced. He suffered from what he describes as a thorn in the flesh. And he thought that it was better that his suffering went. But what was God's response? Well, he didn't remove it. Paul had to learn that God's grace was sufficient in weakness. And do you know what Paul said when he got that response from God? It's one of the most challenging verses for me in the whole of Scripture. He says this, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. See, Paul understood through his suffering that God worked in the whisper, through the surprising, through weakness, so much that he blessed and boasted in what God was doing. Maybe we're asking, I can see that, I can see God's plans uh, are better, I can see that God works in a different way to me. But when that despair comes, like Elijah, how do I stop myself from constantly being disappointed? How do I stop myself just saying, just deal with it, God works differently? I mean, how, how are we going to move from kind of the despair to actually embracing God's plans and who he is. Now, ultimately, it's seeing that the way he works is more beautiful, that his plans are more beautiful than our own. And I want us to see this in verse 18. Have a look at it with me. God says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, Elijah was caught up in his pessimism. He, God had not worked as he expected, and he couldn't see beyond his disappointment. He was giving up, but God wasn't. God had other plans. He was preserving a remnant, a group of 7,000 people. See, Elijah, in his despair, missed what God was planning and achieving. We often do, don't we, when things don't follow our plans. Our judgment becomes clouded, mine does, and we focus on the things that God is not doing and miss what he is. And here, as this nation goes down into the depths of its idolatry, God is working to bring salvation to many. Even when all hope seems to be lost, even when God's prophet can't see a way forward, God brings salvation. And centuries later, we see this salvation that is in seed form here blossom. We see this salvation in the greater Elijah, in Jesus Christ. In him, we see the ultimate demonstration that God's plans far surpass our own. 
See, Elijah wanted to take his life because God's plans were not as he wanted. But Jesus offered his life because it pleased him to do his Father's will. And in giving up his life, Jesus looked like a failure. He looked like his enemies had won. It looked like that God's plans had failed. But Jesus' death was the very means that God was bringing salvation to many. What looked like defeat, what looked like foolishness, was in fact the greatest victory and the wisest event the world has ever witnessed. The cross shows us that God's ways really are better than our ways. And I think it's as we look at the cross that we find the strength not to despair, not to resent God's plans. See, in the cross, we have the ultimate demonstration that whatever we go through, no matter how much we feel the darkness, no matter how confusing God's ways seem to us, we know he can achieve more than we can imagine. Whatever you face, whatever path God takes you down, you can look to the cross and know that God will bring good out of your situation. You can be absolutely sure, even if you can't yet see it. Let's pray. In another letter, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that, we will, be, that will be revealed in us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that those promises like this are so difficult to believe when life takes us in places we don't expect. We look at the prophet Elijah and we Know his despair, Father, at not seeing you work according to how he expected. And Father, forgive us for when we do limit you, when we put you in a box. Help us, Father, to trust you in all circumstances. Please, Father, give us hearts, we pray, that delight in your ways, that delight in your plans. And help us, Father, to so understand and feel your plans that we would have confidence whatever life throws at us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.